Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Teacher Renewed Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Palmas. I am a wife, mom, author, and lifelong educator who has been doing some hard work for two decades. This podcast is about renewing hope, happiness, and belief in education. We get real and talk candidly about ways educators across the globe are working to uproot the education system and making transformational changes for all educators and students. And beyond the why and the what these transformational education leaders are doing, we get into the how you as an educator can drive toward these changes. I am here to take away the pain, exhaustion that too many of us feel day in and day out and rid ourselves of the question if we made the right career choice. Trust me, you did. So let's dig in and ignite the joy, passion, and belief all educators had when deciding to enter a career in education. And let's make some change. So much is possible in education. Welcome back to the Teaching Renewed podcast. I have been waiting for this interview for a while. We've gone back and forth. We've had to reschedule. And finally, today we have Dr. Archie Moss on the Teacher Renewed podcast, which is just such a privilege. I met Archie in his first year of teaching. And the story that you are about to hear is one that is so inspiring and will have you believing in what is possible for yourself, what is possible in education, because that is what Dr. Moss does. He goes for something and he doesn't just make it small he makes it big and there's so much to get to share but again I we were just talking and reflecting on the first time I met him and it was on the Johnson C. Smith University campus he was walking upstairs I was walking downstairs and I just knew that he had to be one of our new teachers I don't know how he just this sense and aura and now 11 years later here we are and Archie is doing and again doctor Moss, rather, is doing extraordinary things across the country. And so if I could, I'd just give Archie this huge hug. I'm doing that right now in my brain via Zoom. But Archie, thank you for being here. And just know that I am over the moon excited to just see you. And I've been following your career for a decade now and am just blown away. Had no doubt in my mind what you were going to do. And just know that like every Everything that you are doing is exactly what you should be doing. And I have a feeling there's going to be even more to come. I know that. So with all of that said, Dr. Moss, why don't you share a little about yourself? Tell us how you come into education and what's led you to doing what you're doing now. Awesome. Well, I just want to start by just saying it is a privilege to be able to be here to speak with you. Like it is literally a full circle moment knowing that you were at the beginning and played like a real integral role in like giving me the foundation of like what education means and how I could find myself in this in this field in general. And so just want to give you back your flowers, say thank you for all that you did to pour into me to get me to this place. And I feel like I had to, I would be remiss if I didn't even start with that. But ultimately, yes, it's been a journey. As I mentioned, you know, I was a a 2011 Charlotte Teach for America Corps member. That's how me and you were able to meet. But I felt like my journey into the education field started way before doing Teach for America. And it actually started as a student. Um, I'm originally from Miami-Dade, Florida. And I think I always tell the story of my sisters going to the the magnet school. There was this new magnet school that had just built my dad's side of the family. And both my sides of the family were like really big on like education. Like we're going to send you to the best schools possible because 
that that's our way out. That's the way to make a better impact. And this new high school had been created and all of my older cousins had gone there. All of them. Um, and when it was time for me to get to choose my high school, of course, it was just a natural for me to like, oh, I'm going to follow on my both of my sisters who both attended this magnet school and had went on to college afterwards. It's like, oh, yeah, this is the path for me. And I realized that I did not want to go to this school. I didn't want to go to this school because I felt like I would be a number. I felt like I wouldn't be able to really stand out and be able to get the experience I wanted because I was going to the school where everyone was just thriving at the highest level. And I feel like although I could feel like I could meet their levels and, and exceed their levels of expectations, I feel like I wanted to be able to have my own path and be able to make a statement and do something really big at the public school that was up the street that my mom went to uh, that no one else in my dad's side of the family had gone to. So it's like, once again, like trying to take my own path. And I think I am so thankful at the opportunity of me going to the public high school. I think I was able to have a great time in high school, but I think over the course of the years, I realized that there was many inequities that were existing in the K through 12 space in a city um, where this other school was right up the street from me, where the, the quality of instruction, the courses that were being offered, I think we had to really advocate for the type of course that we wanted to get in order to have make sure that I was able to be on the even playing field with all of my counterparts. And I also encountered some teachers who were not fully invested and fully in, in trying to pour into the lives of the students and really set me back on my journey. And so I remember the first thing when I begged my parents to let me go to the public school, because it was the whole thing. This was a family decision. This wasn't a decision that I was making a decision that my parents had to trust me in making because they knew the results that would come if I went to the, the magnet school. Everyone was successful coming out of there and me going to the school where it was a microcosm of all different types of people, all different types of cultures, which I feel like I wanted to be able to take in in order to be a more well-rounded individual. And I, it just reminds me, of, I think the, the moment in my career that really was a pivotal moment was ninth grade. I was the honors AP student, but I did not want to take honors geometry. I wanted to be, I'm in the regular classes. I wanted to be with my friends. And I actually had the hardest year, I think, in education. Number one, going into ninth grade, you're already confused on what is high school like? And you're a small fish in the big pond, you know, in this big sea, and you're like trying to figure things out. And I was racially profiled every single day in that classroom by my teacher who treated all of the students of color negatively. There were numerous days where I would walk in and literally the teacher would put me out said telling me that I looked like I was up to no good today. And so this led me to having a real disdain for not only teachers, but also for math, which I loved. <laughs> and funny enough, I became a math teacher. Uh, so it's like this full circle moment again. But again, every day she would tell me that I wasn't going to amount to things. I was, I needed to drop out. But what was unique about me and my upbringing was those words didn't matter and they didn't have power over me because I had a family. <laughs> I had a mom and a dad and two other sisters at home that told me what was possible and told me that I would be successful. So every time she would say these things, although it hurt me and like I would internalize them and I was like a sponge just absorbing them, I didn't let them stick. And I used them as motivation to like prove her wrong. And so she would put me out and then we would have a test the next day and I would get 100%. Mm. Not because she did it, but because I would go home, my dad who loved math would help me with my math. So I would, when I went to school every day, I would be successful. And so I think that was just the beginning of this drive that I had of proving people wrong. She didn't think I could amount to many things, told me I should drop out. She told me that my future wasn't bright. And what was so unique also about, and I always add this in was, I begged my parents to go to the school. And I told them, if you let me go to the school, I promise you I'll graduate in the top 10 of the class. That was our bet. And that was what I had. So, so I knew I had work to do. I and mean, what was so unique was her 
son, the teacher's son was also in the same grade as me. I remember toward the end of my senior year when class rankings came out, he, I walked by her classroom and she was like, oh, did you get your class ranking? I'm, I'm sure you didn't do as high as my son did. And I was like, oh, wow, what number was he? And I believe he was like number 40 something. And I was like, oh, wow, that's great. Good for him. I was like, she's like, well, what number did you fall into? And I was like, well, I'm number 10. And I remember just walking by and I remember having this look on her face of like, how is that possible? How is it possible for him to have been number 10? How is he smarter than my son? It was like all these thoughts were going through her mind. And I remember that image. And I think that image is what I carried through when I went to college, when I decided to make the decision to do Teach for America, when I had moments with my assistant principal, even at my placement school, who told me because I was doing things non-conventionally and I was doing things for my kids that she didn't agree with she once again told me that this career wasn't a good career field for me so once again it was like these stories and these narratives that were constantly being told to me of like I'm not enough I'm not good enough I'm not gonna make it and me using these things as motivation like I I do this work for all of the people who thought I would fail that is why I go so hard and so think about my ninth grade jump teacher think about my assistant principal when I started teaching and I think about even my transition moving to the district here in Memphis being the youngest principal in Chevy County School history but also being the first Teach for America alum to lead a district school there were so many doubts and so many people who told me I wouldn't be successful because I was young I didn't have enough years of experience I'm not from Memphis Memphis. I don't have the right look. I choose to wear my hair in braids. Like there were all these stereotypes and things that people were trying to bestow upon me. But what they didn't realize was I was just blocking all of it. And just like, it was motivation. Like when people were doubting me, it was making me go even harder and work so much harder. But it wasn't for me. It was for my kids and the community I was serving. And so I think that is like the work I do. I see myself and I see the kids that we serve in me. And I think the stories and the narratives that people put on public schools and black and brown boys and girls that I have the opportunity of working with, the, the negative stereotypes, I think that is my motivation. That is my drive. And that's why I literally go so hard to advocate and support educators across the United States, because I think this work is hard enough. And we already are at scrutiny for all the things that we decide to do. If we decide to do, you know, to cut 30 minutes for instruction time to do advisory, where that's target for scrutiny, because now you, you are prioritizing SEL over academics. And why would you do that when you're, you know, your students are still not on full grade level? Like, you know, you have to make these decisions and you're constantly going to be attacked. But it's like, what are you going to do with those attacks? How are you going to channel all of the negativity that's coming your way to lead to positive outcomes and positive results for your kids? And I think that's what's kind of like led me to the work I'm able to do now, working with Transcend Education as a school design partner, where I have the opportunity to really work with school and district leaders to really redesign their schools to really create more equitable and extraordinary experience and outcomes for students. And I think all of the great things I was able to accomplish in Charlotte as a teacher, but then moving to Memphis as a principal and all the things I was able to accomplish as a principal, I'm now able to use my experiences, use my gifts, use my superpowers, as I like to call them, to inspire other schools and other leaders across the country to make the changes necessary because our kids deserve it. And so hmm. no, that was like, in a nutshell, that was like a roundabout way. But like, I think that is how I got to where I am today. I love all of it. And I'm so, in a nutshell, holy cow. <laughs> It's only been 10 years. I know. And you're, you're now coaching districts on how to read.
reimagine education. Like that's what you are doing. And so let's pull back that curtain for a second and talk to us about how you imagine education. And then maybe we'll pull back again and talk about it from the standpoint of you as a principal, but like in your world, all that negativity was surrounding you and you've kept pushing through and you want something bigger and better. What does that bigger and better look like when it comes to education? Honestly, I think this has always been like my philosophy on like how I, you know, approach education, how I want to do things as a teacher, but ultimately it's creating this joy for learning. And so I think a lot of times this is something that I've grown to accept over time. I think people always talk to me and call me Joe Clark as a principal. Not all the negative Batman? things. Batman? Is that okay. how it goes? Nah, Are you like, Batman? Okay. Yeah, it's like not, not all the negatives that come with being referred to as Joe Clark, but this person that was on the ground going to do whatever he needed to do to protect his kids and to give them what they needed. Some ways very non-conventional, which I definitely agree with, but definitely still making sure that kids are seen. I think I've lived in this kind of framework of like being Joe Clark. Like, I don't care what I'm presented with. My kids and students and communities deserve better and I'm going to give it to them regardless of what they need and what what bears are in front of them. But I think I've actually moved from, I think now my folks have began to, they told me that I have to retire Joe Clark. And they have given me this, this title of Don Cornelius, who's from the Soul Train. And like, because they said like, I am a joy curator. And mm-hmm. what my superpowers are is curating experiences of joy for all people, including students, adults, to make sure that they have that thirst for learning, the, the joy of discovery, a joy for school in a fun, you know, freeing opportunity. And so I think if we really want students to be holistically successful in school and life, we must provide them with those environments and experiences where they feel seen, heard, and deeply known. And I think that is what is at the core of my beliefs. Do you know your students? Do you listen to them? Do they feel as though they have a voice and a seat at the table? I think, again, that the belief is that we have to foster the culture of joy in order to really increase those outcomes for students. And I think the philosophy is very simple. Yes, we're creating that, that thirst for learning in our students, but it also starts with taking care of our adults that are pouring into our students. And I think that was something that I held very true to me. I think my experience as a teacher, why well, I didn't always feel that from my leadership, why well, I didn't always feel as though that they were trying to make sure that we were well so that we could in turn make sure our students were well. That wasn't a, the experience I had. But once again, I use those experiences. I think this is the one thing that I think educators have to use every experience to see what you could do differently or to get from like, ooh, if I had this opportunity, I wouldn't do it this way. But I'm so fortunate and grateful that I've been able to witness this leader do this thing this way. So I don't have to make that mistake on my own journey. So I think we have to really look at these moments, not for, oh, they did this wrong. I would never do that. But like, wow, how could I do something differently? Or what did I learn from this experience? Mm-hmm. And I think I learned from that experience that we have to make sure our students and our teachers are well. And so I think as a principal, like I was really, really big on like pouring into my teachers. Like I did a lot for them. <laughs> Whatever I could do to remove the barriers outside of them going into their classroom and teaching, I did. If it was making sure that when we're doing our advisory, you know, I will go ahead and create those advisory lessons for y'all. All you gotta do is internalize them, you know, tweak them, make them your own. But I don't want you to feel as though this is a burden that's preventing you from being able to make those connections with my students. And so, you know, when parents came in, like I interfered with parents to make sure that my teachers could teach. 
so that we could then make sure that we were really ensuring that instructional time was sacred and that we were making sure teachers just had the opportunities and abilities to really thrive in that area. And so I think that's really a part of my philosophy as well. It's like, we have to make sure that while we're pouring into our students and making sure our students are like so taken care of, I got to model that. We got to model the way for our teachers. And my school was a school of joy where everyone was so excited about coming to work every single day because work, this work is hard. Mm -hmm. So if I could make coming to work fun where my teachers are also experiencing excitement and surprises each and every day where they didn't know what they were also going to get, guess what they're going to now do for the students? They're going to in turn create those same experiences for my students, which is going to cause my students to show up to school every single day ready to learn because they don't want to miss out on all the greatness that we have in store for them. And so I think that's also been a part of my journey as well and my philosophy and like how I feel like we have to reimagine schools. We have to literally listen to our students, our communities, and our parents about what is it that they need. I think you would learn so much from the conversations with your kids. And that's one of the initiatives and things that Transcend has really been pushing is like really pushing school leaders and district leaders to have moments where we are having conversation with kids, where we're shadowing students in a classroom, where we are asking them questions, where we're doing interviews, where we're conducting focus groups. Because again, from there, that's a part of our redesign journey. We cannot have a redesign journey if it is not community driven. We have to make sure that the community voice is heard and that if students are saying that learning is not relevant for them, then what do we need to do to make learning relevant for them? And I think those are those moments and those opportunities where we have to literally listen to our community and say, this is what I need in order to be successful. And I think it just goes back to like the tenets that I live for, which I've said, like being seen, heard, and deeply known. Once students feel all those things, they're now going to thrive even more. They're now going to go so much harder to support you. They're going to work so much harder for their teachers because they see that you care. They see that you're invested. I think that's what we have to do to really reimagine school in order to really think about what needs to change in education in general. So a joy curator. I'm going yeah. back to that for just a second. And I'm thinking about the little surprises. And if I were a teacher at your school, what I might not have expected, but that you did. So, because I think my listeners constantly are like, and what's the how? What's the how? So that's the vision. And I, before you answer that, I want to say a couple episodes ago, that that was the crux of my, my episode, which was how do we actually, what if we actually put happiness and joy at the center of education? So instead of the academics, like it was the joy. And we worked outward how much more learning would happen because like as a mom, and I'm sure your parents felt the same way and you as a school leader, I want my kids to come home and be happy yes. that they were, they were at school and be excited to go the next day. I can't say that I experienced that maybe in some classes, you know, when I was involved as there were other joy factors, but I can't imagine how much more I would have learned if like at the core of my educational experience was joy. All of that to say, that's my soapbox. It sounds like they're similar. What were some of those, what was some of the joy factors that you yeah. brought in that people could be like, oh, I can do that. I know it's more than just a strategy because it really is your core. So it's not something inauthentic that you're doing to like be like, hey, I know my teachers and the students need to be taken care of in this sense. Like this is you. So I know it's not just like a one and done and yeah, try it, but like 
from your core, from your ever essence being, what were the things you did? Some of the things you did. Yes. Yeah, so I love that. I love that. This was this was the aspect of the job that I feel like was fun for me. You know, really like how can I when I feel the morale of the school is low, what do I need to do to kind of get them what they need and get them the support they need? And so a few things I'm gonna share. But one of the things I did was one ran on random mornings. My staff knew that I was also the resident DJ. So whenever we have different events, I use music to also help set the tone, give the energy that we want to for the space. So what I would do is I would get there early in the morning, set up the speakers outside, set up my laptop, invite some of my student leaders to come with me. And we would literally blast music in the morning to get the students and the teachers excited, have like a little pseudo dance party on the way inside the building and literally pass out hot chocolate and in, in, in the winter time and pastries, like just passing out these things, just like, hey, here's a small token of appreciation. Let's get our energies up because we know going to work in the morning, nine times out of 10, I would hope everyone's excited about coming to work, but nine times out of 10, no one really wants to get excited for going to work on any given day. And so if I could just spark their interest or captivate something in them by like playing their favorite song or doing something to set the energy up, like that energy just follows with them as they get to their classroom so they can set that same tone for their students. Other things I've done, so like really I've used lots of music and having different random dance parties for my students. Another thing that I've done with my students to like cultivate joy is before I left as principal, one of my biggest things I wanted to do is like, we wanted to get a brand new projector system inside our multi-purpose room where where students have lunch. So what we started doing was we actually changed how we had lunch, where we brought the students on the side where the multi-purpose room was, and we rolled out our big projector and we let them watch cartoons every day for lunch. <laughs> Smallest thing that I never thought, number one, zero incidents ever took place in cafeteria when cartoons were being played because the students were just able to talk to their friends, eat their lunch, watch their cartoons, have a good time. And it was like, they were still able to be kids. And it was like, they were excited to be like, oh, what episode are we going to watch today? And then we all cut off at the end of the time. Like, nope, you got to wait till tomorrow to see what's going to happen next on this show. But again, it made students want to come back because they want to see that. So yes, I hope they came back for instruction but <laughs> and get them to come back because they want to see what's going to happen on the next episode of this cartoon that they get to experience while they're in school. By all means do that. But I will also do this random things that's like, yes, I will say I honestly would commit a lot of my personal funds to a lot of these causes. But that's just because that's what I believe in. Like, I'm not looking for anything in return. If this is going to make my teachers feel better, then that's what that's the purpose it was served for. And so I randomly do things like having a cereal bar in the morning. So they would come in and not have no clue. But on a Monday morning, I would literally go and get these big canisters of all different types of their favorite cereals and put them in the canisters, all different types of milk. We get yogurt and, and oats and like literally we just have a cereal bar where the teachers would come in not knowing anything was going on and be able to just fix their cereal in the morning and like have a small meal and that didn't cost me anything but it's like these different moments where the staff just like you always try to keep us fed and you know a happy staff is a as a fed staff and you know <laughs> that that's how like it's like I was trying to win them over through my ability to feed them because I think ultimately their work is so hard and the least I can do is give them a meal every now and then to show them like I care and like and so some meals yes I sponsor my own 
Some meals, my nonprofit sponsor, but some meals I would reach out to our community adopters and reach out to the community and say, hey, the morale of my school is really low right now. How can you support us right now? Like, do you think you would be able to sponsor a breakfast? Typically breakfast is much cheaper than lunch. So like, let's do breakfast, you know, give them Chick-fil-A, give them something to kind of get them excited to start their days off. And you'd be surprised how, again, how you start your days off, being very intentional about where you spend your time, how it helps to really just set the tone for the rest of the day and hopefully the rest of that week so the teachers are having having a good time. And I think the last thing that I will share is one of the things that we really prioritized as a staff was we would have self-care activities once a month. And so I actually created a self-care committee of teachers and staff members where they were all charged with owning a month. And they were in charge of like planning out what is our self-care activity that we're going to do so that we have opportunities to decompress after work. And so some of these might be us going bowling. Some of them might be um, we did a, a yoga class after school one day after a faculty meeting. We've done one of our staff members was a physical fit, a train. And so he took us to the track at the high school up the street and did like a, a training with us. We did an escape room. We we just done just very random things to kind of get, of course, we did the typical happy hours because everyone just likes to go drink after work. And so I think we just were trying to be very intentional, like how do we make sure we're doing things so that we are pouring into our adults so they understand that we are prioritizing your social emotional well-being as well as the student. And so I think because of that, like I can't expect my teachers to be giving to my students if I'm not giving to them. And so I think it allowed all of my staff members to just be a little bit more bought into this idea and this belief that I was sharing because I'm walking the walk and I'm, I, I talk, I'm talking, I'm walking the walk as well. Like I'm telling you, I care about you and your well-being. So when you don't do that for my students, it's a problem. So now we have to have a conversation about what you need to do better so that we can make sure that our students are getting what they need. And so I think just finding those moments and opportunities to just like have random dance parties to celebrate, you know, randomly at the end of each grading period, teachers that are, have perfect attendance, you know, I would go to Sonic and get the slushies for them. And I would just get slushies for them and all the students that had perfect attendance that quarter. <laughs> just random things. Like, you know, you go during happy hour, they're like 69 cents. So it's very, <laughs> like, these are things that are very cheap. Like, so people are really thinking like, oh my goodness, like, of course, you're just putting out your money, which I'm not saying you have to put out money to be able to do these things or things that you can do giving teachers gene passes, like tell them don't worry about genes for the rest of the, like the rest of this month, giving teachers during Christmas, my Christmas gift to my staff, because again, I have to balance. I'm not giving you all, all these things because it costs lots of money. Have the, every year the staff was growing, but what I would do is each year for Christmas, their Christmas gift was everyone got a half day on the clock where I just dismissed their whole grade level. They went home. And so while they went home, other teachers watched their kids. And so because each teacher knew that they were also getting that time, they had no problem getting those kids and gathering them. So like literally teachers would drop their kids off at lunch and go off for the day. And so some of them would say, like, I would tell them like, go Christmas shopping. If you need a Christmas shop, go take a nap, go <laughs> a happy hour, go shopping. Whatever it is that you want to do during your time, it's completely up to you but I want you to understand like, this is my gift to you. And it's something that did not cost me a thing. Mm -hmm. Typically I would put all those kids. If there were too many kids, I would put them all in the multi-purpose room. And guess what I would do? I would simply watch the kids watch a movie. Mm -hmm. 
Like it's okay to sacrifice those moments because again, I think my teachers came back to work fresh each day because of these moments and experiences where now they're giving their all. And I think that there's just those moments where you could just be spontaneous and try to provide those little nuggets of joy for your teachers and your students as well, where I think that that will in turn create this culture where they are not just members of this culture, but they're actually participating in like creating it as well. And they're in turn doing those same things in our classroom. I love all of that. Food, music, dancing, cartoons, happy staff as a fed staff and also a happy staff is when they get a half day off together collectively that's cool okay so turning the page i don't remember it was 2011 2012 but i remember sitting down having this conversation with you about something like a gentleman's league where you're like i really want to give boys particularly boys of color something bigger something better and Fast forward 10 years, where does that live and stand in all the work that you're doing? Yes. So once again, like this conversation is such full circle because again, this idea, which was just an idea when I was a first year teacher in Charlotte at Whitewater Middle School, was this idea. I realized that so many of the boys of color at my school just were not being successful academically, behaviorally, or socially. And I also was a part of a mentorship program growing up in Miami, Florida called the 5,000 Role Models that really poured into me because I think what's so important is that our students you know, they might have those supports at home that are pouring into them, that are telling them that they can do it, they can amount to things. But as I even described in my example in high school, where you have teachers that don't pour into you, you need that type of support in school as well. And your parents aren't there to protect you in school. You sometimes have to fend for yourself in those moments. And I think this idea of creating a mentorship group for our students within the school confines was so important to me. And so that's where this idea was birthed. Mike had the opportunity of interning with the Charlotte Mecklenburg Superintendent's Office with the, I think it was called the Aspiring Leaders Program at the time. They worked with Teach for America alum or teachers, core members to really have a passion project. And this was my passion project. So fast forward, I left, I was able to relocate to Memphis through New Leaders for New Schools to become a resident principal. And when I got to my middle school that I served as a and principal for, I told him, I was like, I have this mentoring program. Like, I was like, well, let me, let me pause. Do you all have a mentoring program that exists? And he was like, no, we've always talked about, I said, say no more. I got you. I was like, I have a mentoring program that I have had started when I was a teacher that I would love it if you allow me the opportunity to start this process here at the school. And so I started my first year here in Memphis. Once again, it's kind of like my pilot year, figuring things out, like what's going to work well, how it's going to work. And so much came from it where the end of the year that my, I remember my mentor principal, Dr. Kevin Malone was just like, y'all not a 501c3? And I was like, no, I haven't gone through a process. I was like, I've been going back and forth if I want to do it, if I just want to let it live within a school. He's like, you're doing so such good work. I would not want it to just be in this in this one school community. It needs to be broader. And so he really pushed me to make it broader. And so I went through the process of going through the paperwork, which I'm really proud that I did that on my own because I wanted to learn this process. Like, how do you go about creating a nonprofit? And so now fast forward, we started officially in 2017 as a 501c3. And so we're now actually, this past summer was our five-year anniversary. We have now been operating here in Memphis for 
for five years. Previously, before this year, we have been working with about 100 students across the four schools. And we're so very excited that this year we have expanded to five additional schools. And so we're in a total of nine schools serving 230 boys of color in grades three through nine. We're so excited that we are actually piloting at our very first high school this year. So University of Memphis started a brand new university high school that's attached to the university. And so we are working with their ninth grade students only. And so I think it's just such a prime time to actually move into the high school field because they only have ninth graders in their building. And so we're actually able to craft the program to fit their needs so that each year we can grow on it and make it better to make sure that we really have a great program for high schoolers. Previously, we've had been really working with middle schools and elementary students, but now being able to craft what does it look like for high school because high schoolers have so many different needs than our middle schoolers. We're really trying to make the connection and get them ready for post-secondary, for college, career, military, whatever it is they want to see for themselves. We really want them to get ready. And we realized in our journey that like, there was a gap. You know, we supported students at elementary school and middle school. And then we offered a high school scholarship. We started a high school scholarship last year, which I'm also really excited about because they are in the names of both of my late grandfathers, whose last name was Carter and Moss. And so it's called the Carter Moss Boys of Color Male Scholarship. And so, yo, I'm not going to get emotional. Yeah, they... um. You should, you should. This hey, is very, uh, every time I, every time I say it, it, it like, it just strikes something in me yeah. um, because both of my grandfathers played such a pivotal role in my journey, poured into me and basically tell me what was possible in different ways. And I think both of them passing away and like me feeling like I want to make sure that I honor their legacy. I honor all that they did for me and being able to do this by giving these scholarships to high school seniors who are pursuing college is so important to me. And so last year we were able to give out two. This past year we were able to give out four. And so I'm really excited at this opportunity. But I say all that to say, you know, I realized that we were supporting students up until eighth grade and then we we're offering a high school scholarship for seniors. But like, how do they get there to that senior year? What supports have we provided them so that they could be ready to apply for this scholarship at the end of the day? So it's kind of like, in a nutshell, we're like, after eighth grade, we taught you everything, go forth and be great. I hope you make it to senior year. And in senior year, if you make it, apply for the scholarship and we got you. But there were so many students who we might have been losing along the way. And so now being able to go into high school this year and really be able to really develop and focus on the whole child development all the way up through high school is going to be so important. And so I'm so excited to be able to take it to the next level and see how we continue to build on it. The mentoring program now consists of so many different components. We have workshops where we really are giving students the social emotional development, really pouring into them some of the character education that they need to be successful. Of course, we are mentorship programs that are all assigned a mentor. But what is so unique about our mentoring program, and I always share this with others, is that, you know, you hear about My Brother's Keeper Initiative, which was started by President Obama, which is doing a lot of great community work to really, you know, ignite this this conviction as to why we need to support boys of color, which is phenomenal. We heard about Big Brothers, Big Sisters, all of these programs that really pour into students outside of the school environment. But what's unique about my program is our program lives within a school confines. It must be a part of the school blueprint mm -hmm. in order to thrive and be successful. Because again, 
our students need that sense of accountability. They need to know that if I mess up, my mentor is down the hallway from me and I'm going to have to face him at some point. I'm going to have to look him in the face and let him know like I have done something, I've made a mistake and I'm going to have to have my mentor pour into me and let me know like what I need to do differently moving forward. Or sometimes with the community organizations, although they do such great work, they're coming once a month, every two weeks. There's so many moments in between that students need to get that support from their mentors and actually having those mentors live within the school building is what makes that so much more powerful. And so what we do is we work with the school staff to identify males of color who will serve as mentors. We offer them stipends to be able to provide mentorship to the students over the course of the year. And they're charged with just supporting them academically, behaviorally, socially, building those relationships, but ultimately making sure the students, once again, feel seen, heard, and deeply known. And so that's the biggest piece of the program. What do we offer? Field trips, service projects. We have have different extracurricular activities. We sponsored Shelby County School's first ever elementary basketball league. And so ultimately, we try to listen to our students to figure out what is that you all need, want for yourselves, and how do we dangle those carrots in front of them? So you say you want this. If you do the really good, you want this. So now we're going to remove all those barriers and we're going to give that to you. It's here. Now, what are you going to do to get to it? How are you going to work hard to, because you got to work hard. We're, you're not getting anything for free over here. We want to see you put in the work because that's the expectation that we have for you. We know you can aspire to do so much better than what you are uh, even imagined. And I think that's ultimately what we've been able to do. And so I think we really are really creating these environments of joy for our boys of color, where we really are just making sure that they are coming out to be successful. And ultimately, the goal is to increase academic achievement, decrease those suspensions, but ultimately increase those opportunities that we're presenting our students. And I'm guessing increase their joy too. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Like that is like our, our, our model is to educate, empower, enrich. And that is what we strive to do. Like how are we educating them and pouring into them? So they, again, are gathering all this new knowledge. How do we enrich them by supplementing their, their experiences in school with, since, with these experiences of joy and field trips and academic incentives? But also how do we empower them? How do we have them have those through our workshops? How do we have moments where we're really looking at the perceptions that they have of themselves versus the perceptions that others have of them? And how does that make them feel? And what are they going to do differently to, to kind of focus on them? So I think really tackling them and empowering them to know like they are the drivers of their education, I think is so important. And I think they sometimes feel like, oh, I'm just a student in school. I just have to fall in line. I just have to do whatever the adults tell me to do, which yes, we want you to be respectful. We want you to, you know, make sure you're making great choices, but you're not just supposed to fall in line. That is not why anyone in this building was is in this place, not any anyone to fall in line. Your job is to really sometimes as I like to go, it was like cage bust. What do you need for yourself? What is it you're going to advocate for? If you feel as though a teacher isn't giving you what you need, how are you going to respectfully reach out to them and let them know, like, I need something differently from you because this is your journey. And I think that is what I want to see. And even going back to this idea of like reimagining schools, that's what I envision. I envision students being able to feel comfortable with being able to speak their truth and truly advocate from a space and advocating in a space where, in an environment where teachers and staff are receptive and ready to receive that, that pushback or that insight on how we can make things better. It takes a certain type of leader to really be able to like be very transparent and be like, listen, the kids said that things aren't relevant they don't see themselves in the work. This isn't personally attacking us as leaders. This is might be adding criticism or critiques to some of the things that we are implementing in our school. It could be the way that we do, we, we change classes. 
Maybe those feel very oppressive. Maybe it is the way that we are making students stand in line with a bubble around the mic. Maybe it is that. Maybe it is the way that we number the students where we don't give them their names. Like there's so many different ways that by just talking to the students, we can hear what, what they want and desire. And I think the last thing I'll share about this is like when I moved to Memphis, I remember we how we did lunch. I was responsible for lunch duty when I was a resident principal and I was responsible for sixth graders. And so, which was fun. I love sixth grade. I was the grade I started teaching. And I remember we would always have the young ladies eat lunch first and then the young men would go afterwards. So they would get in line first and the, and the males would get in afterwards. And I remember saying, all right, all females, females, please get in line. I need the females. You're in line first. And none, none of the students were moving. And I was like, are they trying to play me because I'm the new kid on the block? Are they trying to test me? And I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, maybe I wasn't clear. <laughs> Females, get in line. It's your turn. And then one of the young ladies raised her hand and called me over. She's like, can I talk to you for a minute? And I was like, yes, what's up? She was like, I just want you to know, like, when you call us females, that is derogatory. And we view that as negative, And we associate that as you cursing at us, like, and calling us a female dog. And I was just like, oh, my goodness. I never... I. I didn't know these things. But once again, I could have been like, oh, really? Really? That's what y'all got to... But again, I was like, wow, I'm in a new environment. I'm learning new things. The student felt confident enough, even though she didn't know me, she felt that she could come to me and say that to me. And from that point forward, they, I never referred to them as females ever again. It was always young ladies and they all got up just as nice as can be and got in line and it was never... But again, it's like, are you in the position as a leader to fully listen. You can learn from your students. And sometimes people's egos get in the way where they're like, no, you're a child. You're going to stay in a child's place. You're going to do as I say. And that's how students lose their thirst for learning. And you basically, you know, you they lose their sense of curiosity and wonder because you basically shut them down. And so I think that's just a small example of ways in which I was just able to really listen to a student and be like, oh my goodness, I never knew this. But it's like, you can learn so much from students. I think educators just need to really, really, really take some more time and really listen to their students and their needs. And so DJ Dr. Moss, I don't know what your DJ name was. I'm making it up. Was it, was it, it DJ was Dr. Moss? DJ Dr. J. Dr. J. Yes. Okay. <laughs> What's yes. the G stand for, Junior? Junior. Okay. So, like, and then it was like we were playing on it because like the D and the J is like Dr. J. And so it's like DJ. So yeah, my staff gave me that name. It was all yeah. right. DJ Dr. J, last question. Just given the state of education right now, and I, I think this is really pertinent to you and the work that you're doing, especially as you're thinking about reimagining education, what advice do you have for educators to help reignite a sense of hope in what is possible in education? So I think there's a couple of things that's coming to mind. The first thing is being okay with the no. I mean, when I say being okay with the no, it's like so many people in my journey and my experience told me no, what I couldn't do. And I did not let that defined me. I utilize that as motivation. And so I think when we turn on TV, we hear the state of education, we hear the negativity that's spewed about what teachers aren't doing and we're underpaid, we're all these things and the lack of respect. Some districts now are basically hiring people who don't want to be teachers, paying them $50,000 just to be in a classroom as a placeholder, really devaluing the work that goes into being a phenomenal educator. And so when you hear all that, 
We cannot internalize any of those things. We just have to use those as motivation to kind of move us forward to say like, do this work for the people that think you're going to fail and really, really, really work hard to do that. And then when you start doing that work, there are people that are still going to doubt you. There are people who are going to not be fully in support of what you're doing. I think the biggest advice that I think I have was given as a school leader that was really embarking on my own journey and my own path that was uncharted territory. If everyone was going this way, I was going to the right and doing my own thing, which again, left me to be open to lots of scrutiny from different individuals. And I think really when you begin to shine in the profession, being okay with shining and bringing others into that shine with you. But if other people, like it's this, it's this quote where someone says that if you're, my light is too bright for you, like don't let anyone dim your light, just offer them some sunglasses because maybe you're blinding them too much. But I think not just that, like not just like trying to be arrogant about it, but ultimately continue shining and bring others with you to shine along the way. I think that is the biggest thing. I have so many individuals have poured into me over the course of my journey to get me here, like from you, Kelly, from like all of my NTLDs with Teach for America, Charlotte, from my former principals in, in, in Charlotte, from some of my mentors that I met through Teach for America, Dr. Erica Jordan Thomas and Aaron Barksdale Cole, like all these mm -hmm. Teach for America, like they poured into me. Like they supported me along the way. When I moved here, my mentor principal, Dr. Kevin Malone, like poured into me. There are so many people who fought for me and like fostered this opportunity for me to continue to, to grow and shine. And so now it is my personal duty to bring others with me. So who am I going to go after now? Who do I see shining bright and might need some support? Who do I need to bring into the space? And so really starting to align myself with others that are really trying to do what's best for kids and really just motivating them. So really finding those opportunities to really gather together and pull back and like really support other people. But then ultimately have those moments to really listen to your community, actually talk to your students and really work to improve schooling with them and not for them or to them. Oftentimes we try to do school, we try to create these things for students and not with students. And we wonder why students are not receptive to some of the things we want. And so I think it's so important that we try these different things and trying them is just, and that's one of the things I, I, the last thing I'll, I'll mention is like, that's one of the things that we at Transcend, we really pride ourselves on this research and development processing where we, it's a cycle where we are trying, where we are, are piloting different things. So I, I talked earlier that I piloted the Gentlemen's League. And from there, I was able to build out this idea of what the, the Gentlemen's League will look like. And then from there, I was able to, well, first I had to envision what it was going to look like. So I envisioned what it was going to look like. Then I started to build and craft what it will look like. Then I went and tried, at, tried it out. We just went and piloted from it. But I think that last step, which is so important, is then what I, I learned from it. What did I learn from these first three steps that I can now begin to go through the cycle again of envisioning, building, trying, and then learning again? So I think if we continue to, all educators across the United States, really begin to internalize that cycle or that approach to learning and just trying things, learning from them, I think we will all be so much better off and it will ultimately hopefully increase their sense of hope in education because again we are out there not just talking about things but we're actually trying those things to make education so much better for all the students because they deserve it thank you so much dr moss where can people find you yes 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 they can find me on twitter so my um, handle is at it's dr moss also on instagram at it's dr moss for my personal pages but then also the gentlemen's league which i'm so very excited for is on Twitter at 
the underscore gents league and then on instagram as well at the gentleman's league no space in between and then also they can look at our website for the gentleman's league at www.thegentsleague.org as well and so we're really really excited about all the work that that's that we're embarking on and also excited for um please stay tuned one of the things that we're really excited about with the gentleman's league this year as i mentioned we have 230 students which is the most we've ever worked with this year and we're actually about to start a campaign where we're going to be looking for individuals to possibly want to donate money that's going to go towards buying them their customized gentleman's league ties mm -hmm. um, we're going to be utilizing as a reward system to really inspire them to be better than they can imagine to themselves to be and so really stay tuned follow follow us on all our sites so she can stay tuned how you can support us as well all right and i will make sure that all of those handles are linked in the show notes archie i am leaving feeling so inspired with so many concrete ideas too and things that i want to go back and just do right now so thank you and just thank you for providing myself our listeners with your wisdom and your time. It means the world to me. No problem. It was a pleasure. Dr. Moss, thank you so much for being on today's episode. Here are the takeaways. Number one, the best way to reimagine education is to put the joy of learning at the center of everything. Number two, we cannot have a redesign journey if it is not community driven. We have to know what brings people joy and we must take time to listen, especially to our students. Number three, our students need to be seen, they need to be heard, and they need to be deeply known. Four, we have to make sure our teachers and students are well first and foremost. And some great ways to do that is through music, dancing, food, and yes, even cartoons. Number five, we can't expect our teachers to give to our students, to pour into our students if we are not giving and pouring into our teachers. Number six, we are not meant to fall in line. Sometimes we need to cage bust. We as educators need to do this, and we must also support our students in being cage busters. Number seven, be okay with no. A no does not have to define you. In fact, it can be your motivation. Number eight, be okay to shine. And if anyone tells you you are shining too bright, hand them a pair of sunglasses. And for everyone else who supports your shine, bring them along with you. That makes you and them and the world around you all the more brighter. And number nine, envision, build, try, learn, repeat. Mm -hmm.